Father, open our eyes, Lord, that we can behold marvelous things from your word. Help us to have open hearts and ears, Lord, and help us to embrace the truth and live it out in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 32 is kind of a comma tragedy, comic and tragic at the same time. If you remember, that's the story of uh, the golden calf. And it's tragic uh, because this idol is produced right after Israel as a nation has agreed to God not to make idols. Kind of odd, kind of comic in the way humanity's broken and frail and comic all at the same time. If you remember in the story, uh, Moses has led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and they've come through, they've seen the judgments God made on Egypt, he's provided for them in the wilderness, they got to Sinai, they're there on the plains, God comes down in this glorious presence, smoke and fire, and the booming voice rolls out over the plains there around the mountain, and God speaks the ten words, the ten commandments, and the nation of Israel says, God, we're in. Count on us. This is for us. We're signing up for this covenant. But they also say, Lord, uh, we're not sure we can continue to listen to you. We think we'll die if your voice keeps coming to us. So they say, Moses, would you do us a favor? You go up to that mountain. You get God's word. You come back down and tell us what God said. We'll do it. So Moses goes back up to the mountain. And he stays there for a while. You know, it's days and then it's weeks. It's almost six weeks. And 40 days later, he's still on the mountain. They still haven't seen him. And the nation's wondering, what happened to this guy? You know, was he incinerated by this fiery God on top of the mountain? Where is he? We're kind of wondering. We need a leader. And so they get a bright idea. And they go to Aaron. And you remember, Aaron is Moses' brother. And with Moses, he's been God's mouthpiece to Pharaoh and to Israel and to Egypt. He's been there for it all. He's seen it all. And they go to Aaron and they say, make us a God who will go before us. As for Moses, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron, friend, we need a leader. Moses is gone, so you make us a God. And you know, it's funny, tragic funny. Aaron, there's no recording of any saying, hold on, slow down, not a good idea, no complaining on Aaron's part. And so Aaron says, hey, uh, give me the gold, give me your earrings, give me your trinkets you brought from Egypt. And he produces a golden calf. And then he says, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. It's crazy, isn't it? They've made an idol and they're going to worship and bow down to it days, bare weeks, after they heard God say, don't make any idols. Here they are doing it anyway. It's comic also, if you read the story, you know, later Moses comes down, he's ticked, right? Aaron, what in the world is going on? And Aaron says, well, you know the people, you know, you can't really restrain them. And I threw this stuff into the pot and out popped this calf. Amazing. Supernatural. Anyway, Exodus 32. Don't make idols. They've already broken it. We are in the second of the Ten Commandments this morning, or the Ten Words, We'll be looking at the one that talks about idolatry in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. If you've got your Bible or a study sheet, I'm reading from the New American Standard. God said there, you shall make, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath 
or in the water under the earth. Where God here is telling them, make no image of birds that fly, animals that walk, creatures in the sea that you would worship as God. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, just mention again, Lord in all caps in your Bibles means Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So, second command, second word, God says, make no idols. Make no idols. Uh, An idol is anything that a man makes that he's going to worship as God. Could be stone, could be metal, could be wood, and it was all of those things in the ancient world. But it was any image that was worshipped as God, a God substitute. Not God, God substitute, worshipped as God. And in the ancient world, uh, the world was full of idolatry. It's hard for us to get our minds around this, how full of idols the ancient world was. So I love archaeology, by the way. I get biblical archaeology, and I love the articles. I've got books on Egypt, and I love it. When we taught the girls history and homeschooling Egypt and the ancient world and the, of the Bible, that's where we started. And if you look in the tombs of Egypt, all the artwork, it's amazing. It's, it's uh, mind-boggling. But, you know, as you think about it, you know what most of those images are? They're idols. They're the Egyptian gods and their prayers for Pharaoh or the important people that were mummified and buried to be protected or escorted by the right gods for a, for a good afterlife. They're all idols, pretty as they are. Uh, when the Jews go into the land of promise and dispossess the Canaanites, the land is full of idols, primarily the Baals and the Asherahs that we've talked about, but others also. One of the wonders of the ancient world was the statue and the temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. It was a huge statue of the god Artemis. So in the Jewish world, in the world in which this story took place, idolatry, statues being worshipped to God, this was the norm. And so when God meets Israel and he enters into this covenant with them and he says, I'm your God and you're my people, he says, make no idols. You're not to worship anything that's not me. Now, there's a couple kinds of idols. Uh, The first is this. The first is an idol that is called or worshipped as Yahweh, but is not. And in fact, you see this in Exodus 32. Look at verses 4 and 5. Aaron says of the calf, This is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, the Jews know who brought them up from the land of Egypt. Yahweh brought them up by name, by mighty acts. There's no confusion. Yahweh brought them up. And Aaron says the calf, the statue, the idol, is the God who brought them out of Egypt. Aaron says the calf is Yahweh. Later in verse 5, he says, tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. So when Aaron makes the calf, he's calling the calf Yahweh. He's not saying it's another god. He's saying the calf itself is Yahweh. So right here, right from the start, they've they've broken the second command. 
God says in a parallel passage in Deuteronomy 4, explaining in part why they don't make idols, he said there, when I met you at Horeb or Mount Sinai, he says, you did not see any form. You didn't see an image of me that you could copy. I showed up in thunder and fire and lightning, but you saw no image of a thing that you could see and say, that's God, and make a copy of it and worship it. And he says, because you saw no form of me then, be careful that you don't make any. Later on in Isaiah 42, and if you have a study sheet, there is so much in the Bible about idolatry. We're not covering today. We're not scratching the surface. There's other key passages. Many of them are in Isaiah. One of the Isaiah passages says in Isaiah 42.8, I am Yahweh, that's my name. I won't give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. In Isaiah's day, idolatry was a huge deal. And God says, guys, I will not accept my glory being given to an image that you put my name on. It's unacceptable. Not only may you not worship other gods, you may not worship me in the guise of an idol. So this first kind of idolatry, it's not intentionally breaking the first commandment. Aaron wasn't saying there's another God. There's a difference here to be made. He's not trying to break the first commandment, have no other gods before me. He doesn't think he is. He's breaking the second. Don't worship me as an image that is less than I am. That's the point. Now today, if you look at this, and I'll probably step on some toes here, I come from a Roman Catholic background. If you come from a Roman Catholic background or an Orthodox background, uh, these groups have statues and pictures that you bow and pray to. Now, however you defend this, that's what God has specifically prohibited. You don't make an image of me that's my substitute that you look to and worship or pray to. This is exactly the prohibition that you see Aaron crossing in the making of the gold calf. He doesn't say a different God. He says it's Yahweh, and it's a deficient image of Yahweh. This is the same thing. So let me qualify this too this way. The prohibition is not against art generally. And if you read in Exodus about the tent that God has them make, where he's going to dwell with them, or later about the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Those are adorned with great artistry. In fact, it says God gives supernatural wisdom and ability to two people in Israel to produce the artistic things he wants done. So this isn't a prescription against art for art's sake because God is behind that too in his own tabernacle, in his own tent. But the prescription is against something that substitutes itself as God. I would say on application, pictures and paintings of biblical scenes and and events and personages, I don't think cross this line either. Uh, Durer and other uh, either historical or contemporary artists who are depicting scenes from the Bible are not crossing this line either. In fact, I would even say... Images of Jesus, whether it's in a film, whether it's in a painting that depict Jesus in the scenes he lived in, in the Gospels, I don't think cross this line either. 
when they're not used as images to be worshipped, when they depict Jesus as someone thinks he might have been on the earth. That's not quite the same thing either. If you pray to that image, if you bow down to that image, that's another thing altogether. But if I see the Jesus film, I don't think I'm seeing something that breaks the second commandment. And if I see someone's uh, pictorial depiction of Jesus healing or feeding the multitudes, that generally does not cross this line, I think, because those depictions are not meant as objects to be worshipped or focal points by which you see Yahweh, the invisible God. Here at Sinai, Yahweh was heard, but he was not seen. And so, he says, to make any image of him was to diminish his glory. Any image would be less than he was. Al Mohler, in his book, Words from the Fire, a book about the Ten Commandments, says this, This is not a God who is seen, but a God who is heard. The contrast with the idols is very clear. The idols are seen but they don't speak. In fact, this is a theme throughout the scriptures. The idols are powerless. They're they're depictions of humans or animals, but they have absolutely no power. Now, imagine, if you will, that I'm standing in my home with my lovely wife in front of me, and uh, I pull out of my pocket a crude drawing of her I have made, and I have absolutely no artistic ability whatsoever. So, So lovely as my wife is, this picture, it doesn't remotely capture who she is or what she's like. And as we stand there in the house and my wife's on my right, I pull my picture out, my crude, deficient representation of my wife, and I gaze at my picture, my wife standing over here, and I say, honey, I love you, I'm devoted to you, I'm asking you for a great supper, answer my prayer, you know, give me a great supper. My wife is standing to my right. Does she feel loved and respected? Does she feel competent, capable, loved by me? Not at all, right? Because I'm talking to a picture. I'm not talking to my wife. And that's exactly the thought here. God says, I will not be worshipped by an image that's not me. You may not worship me in an image that's less than I am. So one form of idolatry is to make an image and call it God. Call it the true God. Not another God, but God. It's not. The other form of idolatry is what we normally think of. Idols of other gods. Pictures, images of other gods. Not Yahweh. And you see this, by the way, throughout. This is interesting. Throughout the Bible, this is, this is uh, arguably one of the most consistent of the topics or themes you'll see throughout the Old and New Testaments. It's idolatry. Numbers 25, Israel's going into the land. What happens? They worship another idol. A Baal at Peor, God judges them there. Uh, it's hilarious. Uh, judges is one of the most interesting uh, books to read in the Old Testament. Uh, people that haven't read their Bibles and think it's boring, they've never read the book of Judges. It's graphic. It's unbelievable what, what we will do. And it's funny, when God picks one of his judges, Gideon, in Judges 6, uh, the first act of redemption God requires of Gideon is to pull down the idols his father has put up and his family worships. God says, before I can get you to deliver the nation, you've got to pull down the idols that you've been worshiping with your dad and with his family. 1 Kings 18, we looked at last week, the duel between the gods where Elijah for Yahweh and the prophets of Baal, they have that duel on Mount Carmel. 
That's where they lived. Idolatry was part of their life. If you read uh, Judges and especially the prophetic books, you see this theme coming up again and again and again. But you know, you get to the New Testament and you see more of the same. You know, the early church, this is one of the key uh, issues they faced. Because the Roman world, like Israel's world, it was filled with idols. Filled with idols. So every place the gospel went, it was confronting false gods just like Israel and Egypt. And the Christian church had problems because these Gentiles, they'd been worshiping those idols. Their life was tied up in that idolatry. Their family, their friends, the meat sold in the markets came from the idol temples and they had real legitimate questions. What do we do? What's this look like? What can we eat? What shouldn't we eat? So 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 key passages on that. We're not going to go into those this morning. But Paul says things like flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Get away from it. Stay away from it. He also says, though, when the pagans invite you to supper, go. Don't worry about where that meat's been. Those idol worshipers, they need Christ just as surely as you did. He doesn't tell them to, to avoid the idol worshipers. He says, flee the idolatry. There's a great phrase in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 where Paul writes back to that church and he says, you turn to God from idols to worship the living and true God and wait for a son from heaven. That's the early church. Because if you weren't Jewish, you were probably worshiping idols. So it was a huge issue in the early church. Now, you know, if you think of idolatry just in the ways we've described it this far, you and I probably feel pretty safe. I'm not bound down to any statues. I don't have pictures on my wall that I pray to. I doubt if anybody here does. I feel pretty safe. You know, the, the trouble, though, I think this is probably maybe the most underrated of the Ten Commands or the Ten Words. And my bottom line is I've thought about it as this. We are probably the most idolatrous people in the history of the world of all times. And I mean in the Christian church as well. Because Paul reframes the whole theme of idolatry in Colossians. And this is what he says there. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Now, we'd all say those things are bad. Yeah, we should avoid those. But then listen to what Paul calls them. He says, which amounts to idolatry. Did you know that our greed is idolatry? And when I covet what someone else has, Paul says that's idolatry. The evil desires I entertain, that's idolatry. You know, if you reframe idols from statues and images on the wall to what Paul says they are in our minds and hearts, then you're looking at idolatry in an entirely new way. It becomes very, very convicting. On one hand, we say, no, we're not making metal, wooden, stone idols and worshiping them. But on the flip side, we're replacing God with all sorts of lesser God substitutes. And guys, this list could be as long as you and I wanted to make it. When I'm thinking about this, initially I'm thinking about things like success or our version of success as an idol, sex, drugs, better looks, eternal youthfulness, 
uh, better appliances and cars, uh, better vacations, higher level of lifestyle. Those are all idols. Potentially, those are all idols. For me, they're idols. For you, they're idols. Tim Keller includes this list of four idols in his contribution to a book called No God But God. Things like comfort. If you're a comfort seeker, you know how this becomes an idol. Uh, Approval, the approval of others. Control, probably no one in here struggles with control. Uh, Power, to pursue those, Paul says, just like greed, covetousness, those things become idols. In fact, almost anything can be an idol. Matthew Henry said this, Pride makes a god of self. Covetousness, we might insert the term greed, makes a god of money. Sensuality makes a god of the belly, or in our age and time, uh, sex. Sensuality makes a god of sex. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of. Whatever replaces God, we've made a God of. Whatever we trust, delight in, more than God, we've made a God of. Now, I think as evangelicals, I think we entertain uh, idols too. Um, For instance, a God is the cosmic candy man if you come from a health and wealth gospel background. God is the God who's the, the great cosmic candy man who's there to give me the things I want. I have a sweet tooth, Lord. I'd like a little bit more candy, please. Thank you. Green lights and blue skies. If you come from a theistic evolution background, I'd argue you worship a cosmic watchmaker God. Some God who has created the earth and he set it in motion and now he benignly stands back and watches it all unwind. That is not the God of the Bible. Or uh, this, I think, uh, probably the most common God or idol I'm aware of, This is the God who's just like me. Because, you know, I'm a nice person. And God's probably a nice person. I'm thoughtful. You know, God is thoughtful like me. You know, I don't hurt other people. And and God's a bit like that, too. And, you know, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, the God who's just like me, it's kind of the ultimate idolatry. And it's the most common We remake God in our own image, the most common God of all, I think. But also, the God who is love but is not jealous, this is an idol. The God of mercy but not of justice, that is an idol. That's a God that doesn't exist. So, all of these things are depictions of God less than he is, or there are issues in our heart and mind that we substitute for God. One of the most important books on idolatry is by Greg Beale called We Become What We Worship. He says, God created humans to be imaging beings who reflect his glory. If they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. Just by the very nature of our creation, we will reflect something else. We will desire something greater than ourself. It's just the way we're wired. If it's not God, it will be an idol. It's just a given. Martin Luther said this, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is your God. 
Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. Let me say that again. Trust and faith of the heart alone, that identifies who or what your God is and who or what your idol is. What do I trust in? What is my faith in? To practice idolatry in any form is to worship a lesser God. And God says, don't do it. Don't go there. Now, God tells us why he forbids idolatry. If you look in verse 5, guys, by the way, we are cramming a lot in. And I'll try and stay really tight on time, but we're still going to run just a little bit long. So stick with me. Verse 5, don't worship them idols or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. God says, I am jealous. And the Hebrew there is the word kanah. It's only used six times in the Old Testament, and every time it's used, it's referring to God himself. God says, I am jealous, and that's why you must entertain no idols. To be jealous is to be intensely, zealously committed to purity in an intimate relationship. Zealously, intensely committed to purity in an intimate relationship. Later in Exodus 34, 14, God feels so strongly about his jealousy towards those he's in a relationship with. He says there, you shall not worship any other God for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. God identifies so fully with this attribute of jealousy, of this holy burning zeal, for the appropriate affections and intimacies of those he's in a love relationship with, that he says, my name is jealousy. I am jealous at my very core. As part of my character and who I am, I cannot tolerate idolatry because I am jealous. You guys know, usually in our culture, if you use the term jealous, it's a bad thing, it's a negative Biblically, that's simply not the case. We are called to be jealous for the intimacies of someone we're in a unique relationship with. Signally, this is where you'd see it in the marriage relationship. A husband is supposed to be jealous for his wife's affection. If he's not, he doesn't love her. And if the wife isn't jealous over her husband's affections, she doesn't love him the way God wants her to. Jealousy, biblically, is a positive thing. It's this holy desire for things in the relationship that belong only in the intimacy of that relationship and not to others. In fact, if you read Proverbs, when the father's talking to the son about sex, one of the things he says is, let your water be your own, not not water in the streets, poured out for everybody. It's common, it's polluted. No, he says it's supposed to be water from your own well, it's only yours. It's only you and your wife. It's not you with a gal who's been with 10 other guys or a gal who's been with a guy. Switch that around, however that works. It's it's intimacy that's supposed to be only in that relationship. Well, that's true, God says, of himself with his covenant people. Because that's the case, this changes, for me, this changes the attitude about idolatry. If you say idolatry has to do with God's jealousy and his love for us, and what our love for him should look like, it's not just an issue about sort of external things. It's about where my heart's at. 
John Seal and Os Guinness write this in the book, No God But God. Breaking with idols and living in truth are finally not a test of orthodoxy, not a test of doctrine, what I say I believe, but of love. That is why idolatry is worse than apostasy. It is adultery. Idolatry is adultery. Love is the final expression of truth, just as loyalty to truth is the vital test of love. So God says entertain no idols because God jealously, zealously desires the intimacies that he's in in a love relationship with his covenant people that belong to no other God. This is entirely appropriate. When we worship God as something less than he is, he's constrained by his holiness to reject it. God does not accept worship given through idolatry. God's warning continues in verse 5. Uh, This is a a passage that challenges Christians. Um, God says there, Don't worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So God says he will visit, that is, visit in judgment those who practice idolatry. The language, language he uses here is really strong. The words he uses are really strong. He says idolatry is iniquity. That is, it's depraved, it's perverse, it's guilt. And these are the terms used of people like the Amorites and the Sodomites, people that God poured down his judgment on, removing them from the land, fire and brimstone from heaven. Those are the same terms applied to those living in Sodom or to the Amorites. God said, their cup of iniquity is full. It's time to move them out. Same term. He also says, those who practice idolatry hate me. Hate is a strong term. They're my enemies. They've made themselves my enemies through worshiping someone or something that's not me. This is really strong language. This puts a really different flavor on the thing of idolatry. It's perverse. It's depraved. God says when you practice idolatry, you make yourself my enemy. Now, the portion that causes most people trouble is where it says God will visit in judgment the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God visits in judgment. Canaanites removed from the land. Jews went into exile, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, in part for idolatry. God says, I'll visit you in judgment. And by the way, when we send our teams to Haiti, guys, there's a reason Haiti is, is, the, is the tragic place it is, and it is this. It's idolatry. The nation of Haiti, there's no reason for that part of the island. It's only half the island. There's no geographic reason. There's no a material reason for Haiti to be the poor place it is. That nation was begun by slaves revolting, murdering all the establishment, and sacrificing a pig to Satan, dedicating their new country, their liberated country, to another god. And guys, the fruit of that continues there to this day. It's the poorest place in the Western Hemisphere. The other side of the island, they're doing just fine. There's a reason for that. It's spiritual, and it's the fruit of idolatry. That's real life, real time, just down the way a little bit. 
When God says here he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation, I want to be careful to say this is not saying God is punishing the innocent for the sins of their ancestors. And stick with me for just a second here. If you go in to any place in any time, how many generations of the same family do you think tend to be alive at the same time? Three or four. Three or four. Sometimes five. Three or four is the norm. Children with their parents, grandparents, that's three generations, and great-grandparents, that's pretty typical, isn't it? Three or four generations are alive at the same time. And God is not saying, I'm going to take the father's sins and now their children and their grandchildren are going to pay for them. God is saying that he is going to bring judgment on the whole extended family that's practicing the same sin of idolatry. The father passes it on to the children, passes it on to the children, passes it on to the children. And if you look at a time like Israel going into the land of Canaan, When they wipe out, for instance, the city of Jericho, how many generations do you think were wiped out? Three or four. The sins of the fathers visited on every generation alive at that time for the same sin. Not not the kids being punished for dad's sin. The scripture speaks to this clearly. We won't read them, but Deuteronomy 24 and Ezekiel 18, God speaks very specifically to this. He says, I'm not going to judge the father for the sins of the son, And I won't judge the son for the sins of the father. Each one will be judged or will die for their own sins. So this is not saying God is going to judge innocence for the sins of their fathers, but rather he will punish all the generations of that extended family for the same common family sin of idolatry. It's evil, it's hateful towards God, and it brings about his judgment on those who practice it. Now, there's a flip side. There's a real warning against idolatry. But there's a huge upside to keeping this commandment and obeying it. And in verse 6, you see this. God says, he'll show loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The thousands isn't thousands here. It's thousands genealogically. It's generations. So when God talks about judging idolatry as, is, as he must because he's holy, he says on the third and fourth generation. But you need to understand, this is a limit on God's judgment. But when God says, when you obey me and you're in covenant with me, he says, now I will open the floodgates of heaven and I will pour out blessing on you to a thousand generations. I think thousand is a round number here. I don't think it's meant to be limited. Uh, Generations in the scripture time-wise can be 40 years in some places, 100 years in others, 4,000 to 10,000 years. These are just broad numbers. God says, when you're faithful to me in covenant love, man, I'm free to pour out my blessing further than you can imagine, longer than you can think of when you're true to me, when you practice covenant faithfulness. God judges because he must. He shows kindness and mercy because he delights to. And this is just another one of those passages. When God identifies himself, he's righteous, so he must judge. But when God says what he delights in, it's always loving kindness, faithful love, and mercy. And you see that here in the judgment and the blessing. 
Uh, Way back in Genesis 1, in the creation account, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So back in the day, if you said, I want to see the image of God, all you had to do was Adam could look at Eve, Eve could look at Adam, see their reflection in the water. You want to see the image of God? There it is. God's image on the earth without idolatry is humanity. You want to see the image of God? Look in the mirror. By the way, this is a theme Paul picks up in 2 Corinthians. Because we're being transformed in the image of Christ. Look in the mirror, he says. The transformation's going on. Look at each other. There's the image of God. Now, there's a problem with this image, though, isn't there? Not what it should be, right? Uh, Philippians, I think it's chapter 2. Paul says we're like bent, twisted creatures. That's moral. We're not what we should be. The image is there, but it's twisted and it's, it's partially demolished. It's not what it should be. But humanity, we are the image bearers of God on the earth. So what's God do? Well, he sends down a perfect version of his image in the incarnation when Jesus Christ, God the Son, comes to earth and takes on our humanity. You now have on the earth a perfect image of the real true God. It's not idolatry. We talked about Jesus' deity last week. Jesus is the image of God on the earth. He's God's image on the earth restored. John 14, I I won't uh, mention just to say, uh, Jesus tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said to see him is to see deity without idolatry. Nothing short of that. Colossians 1.15 Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 2.9. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. See, if you want to see deity, you just have to look at Jesus. And that's not idolatry. And this statement is remarkable. If Jesus is anyone, anything less than Yahweh, than God Almighty, than the God of gods, eternal, omnipotent, infinite, if he's anything less than that, this is idolatry. The Bible says, no, Jesus, he's God. See Jesus, see Yahweh. See Jesus, see deity. Same thing, no difference. You know, the trouble for us today, of course, we're not with the apostles. We're not walking the hills of Palestine. We do not see Jesus in front of us before his death and resurrection or after his death and resurrection. So if we say, well, see Jesus, you've seen God, it's still like, well, where is he? You know, like to see him, like to see that. Right hand of the Father, you know, we're not going to get there just right now, I think, but that's where he is. So how do we see Jesus today? There's all kinds of ways. Literally, we do see him in each other, right? We have the image of Christ within us, transforming, Lord willing, more and more. We see him in the truth of the scripture, certainly. Are we reading our Bibles? Ken talked about this in Mosaic this morning. We get truth and we see Jesus and God as he is when we read about him in the pages of the scripture. That's still the primary way he communicates who he is to us and makes it real to us. We see him there. You know, we also see him in this way. In this church, at least the first Sunday of each month, when we break bread and we drink the juice, we see Jesus in the sense that we're remembering, right? So we see him as we think about his offering for our sins, him taking our place, and we hear him Remember, he said, do this and remember me. We're following his word, his command. We anticipate seeing him 
Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we're doing this, we're practicing this participation at the Lord's Supper, but we do it only until he comes. You know, the Lord's Supper, it looks back, we remember Jesus, who he is, what he did, but it also says we look forward to seeing him again. As he really is. Guys, this will be a sight. You know, John sees him in Revelation. He can't stand up in his presence. You know, Herod says, white as wool. His eyes are like flaming fire. His feet look like burnished bronze. He is so glorious and so overwhelming that unless he gives us that resurrection body, we could not stand in his presence. So we anticipate seeing him again in the future. But when we remember it in the Lord's Supper, we're seeing him. Just as surely as when we read the truth of him in the pages of the scripture. To see Jesus is to see Yahweh and to worship Jesus is to worship God. How am I doing? I would offer some other sides, but I better not. Hey, benefits. You know, there is a benefit to keeping all these words we said. To obeying God's commands, there's benefit. When we refuse to bow down to creatures and created things, and guys, especially for us today, when we refuse to bow to our own passions and vices and turn to the living and true God in the face of Christ, we have done with lesser things and lesser gods that cannot save us and cannot bless us. Those lesser gods, all they do is curse us. Think of Haiti, think of Israel, think of anything you want. Idols can only curse us. And we turn instead to the source of every blessing and delight. To refuse all other God options, demigods, and love the Lord our God with all our hearts is to become our best self. If you look in the mirror and say you're not what you want to be, or reflectively you look at your character and say I'm not what I want to be, look at Christ. Worship the true and living God, have done with idols, and you'll become more and more, little by little, the best version of yourself God means you to be. That's part of the transformation when we give up idols and worship God only. Uh, to worship God truly is to place ourselves in the place of peace and blessing. God says, I delight to pour out my loving kindness and my mercy and my truth. So if we have done with idolatry, God is free to do what he delights to do, which is to pour out more of himself and more of his goodness on us, overflowing our lives with more of his blessing. This is another one, and this is a little other-centered, but back to the promise. You know, all of us make investments in life, all kinds of investments. You know, with, how's our portfolio doing? You know, I lost 30% or I'm gaining or whatever, and, and I extrapolate that down the years, and this is what I'll have. And, and, you know, maybe if I'm getting older and I'm thinking about what will I be able to leave to my children or to their children, you know, what will that look like? You know, I can't think of a greater heritage posterity that any of us could leave than this godly worship of the true and living God through Christ. Because if God says to those who are faithful to me in this covenant love, I'll pour out my blessing to a thousand generations. If I want to bless my children and their children, people born today and people yet to be born, when I practice covenant faithfulness and love God and have done with idols, This door is open for God to pour out blessings on those who follow me. This is unreal. This is is, huge. Do I want to bless my kids? Do I want to bless my grandchildren? Love God. Have done with idols. 
And that's the heritage I give them. And that's the blessing they get from God. To worship God as he is, is to join the host. God the Father says he's looking for. Those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a reference at the end of your study, Revelation 5. Just leave it at that. It's a great scene of worship. It's where you and I are headed. Golden calves, beautiful statues, our own desires for riches and pleasures all fall short of the glorious reality that is God. And we must put away lesser things and lesser gods so we can see and know and enjoy and savor the living and true God as he really is. And last thing is this. We need to love God and have done with idols. And we need to pass that passionate love for Christ and the real God on to others in spiritual darkness around us. It won't do to savor God on our own and not tell people who are worshiping idols there's a better way. There's a true God and there's a life of blessing. Father, help us to be done with lesser things and lesser gods. Father, help us to honor you through obedience by having done with idols, whether those are passions and desires, Lord, whether that's a new house, a new car, a lifestyle, a painting on the wall. God, help us to see you as you are. And thanks for revealing yourself most clearly and most fully in the love of your son, the Lord Jesus. And it is with abandon and joy, Lord, that we cast ourselves on him for your mercy and bow to worship him in love and devotion now. In Jesus' name, amen.